You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Well, I think, you know, 90% of the food that we eat actually comes from outside of Maine. And in Maine, we really don't have those big agribusiness, you know, large farms that tend to have you know, real issues with um, pollution and, you know, challenges like in other places where there are really large farms. So one of the things that we can do is try to buy more food locally because the farms that are in Maine, um, whether they're you know organic, certified organic or not, um, most farmers are working really hard to take good care of their land and their animals. And you know you can get to know that farmer if they're in your, your community and you're gonna know what their practices are. You know, I, I wanna try to work with smaller farmers to just help them move product themselves because they don't need to be delivering as often as they do. I want them to be farming and producing and you know, taking care of their crops and such. Um, and I'm happy to be there to move their product around for them. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 296, airing for the first time on Sunday, May 21st, 2017. Today we're talking about farms and food. How do we support Maine farmers? One way is to buy our food from local producers. We can also do our best to make ourselves aware of agricultural issues in our state. Today we speak with Amanda Beal, the President and CEO of Maine Farmland Trust, a member-powered statewide organization that protects farmland, supports farmers, and advances the future of farming. We also speak with Heidi Powell, the owner and operator of Dirigo Wholesale, a wholesale distribution company specializing in local and away produce, groceries, and specialty ingredients. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kennebunkport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, and we're especially excited to note that Love Maine Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Maine Craft Music Festival with special guests, the ghosts of Paul Revere. For tickets to the Maine Craft Music Festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival, go to KennyBunkportFestival.com. All of us at Maine Media Collective look forward to seeing you there. Love Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Today it is my pleasure to speak with Amanda Beal, who is the president and CEO of Maine Farmland Trust, a member-powered statewide organization that protects farmland, supports farmers, and advances the future of farming. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's great to have you in. 
So I'm a big fan of farms, and um, I'm hoping most people who are listening are big fans of farms, because that's how we eat these days. How did you become a big fan of farms? <laughs> well, I guess I was born into it. I uh, actually, uh, my father is a, a commercial dairy farmer, and so I grew up on a farm, and I don't, I don't know that I really appreciated that upbringing until later in life, and, uh, but I definitely appreciated having access to woods and fields and animals, and it was kind of a rich upbringing in that way. Um, but I think, you know, I, I went away after high school, like a lot of kids do, and I ended up taking a sort of an extended gap year, which turned into maybe two and a half years where I lived out in Yosemite National Park. And so there I really started to learn about, you know, ecology and the environment and conservation and the impact that humans have on land and on the earth. And I think that that as I came back around to Maine and really having still a, a great appreciation for our working landscape here um, and for, you know, my upbringing on a farm, I started to put things together and started thinking a lot about how we produce food um, and how we don't appreciate enough how much how hard farmers work for us and um, that they really do try to be good stewards and that it's important that we start to pay attention to that so I think that's kind of how it came around I also got really interested in you know human health and what we eat and nutrition um, which eventually led me to uh, do my master's degree at Tufts at the Friedman School of Nutrition. And uh, so, yeah, that's been sort of my journey in a nutshell. So you were lo looking at kind of nurturing, um, I guess, people, both at a micro and a macro level. I mean, if you have, you have a master's degree from Tufts in nutrition, that's sort of a little bit more micro. And then you're looking kind of the, the circles that go out from that. Mm. That's an interesting... Um, not everybody who goes into the field that you're in has yeah. that background. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, and I think it's an interesting time, too. I started getting more and more engaged in the, the conversations about looking at our food system as a system. And so um, that's been sort of an ex a, a way that my mind has expanded in terms of thinking about how we produce food and how we move it around and who has access to it and all of those components of, of the system itself. One of the things I, I'm interested in hearing from you is we have this great um, access to farmland in the state of Maine, and many people are doing ar organic farming, but it seems like it has been difficult to transition to a place where we can provide all the food that we need for all the people who need to eat it and have it all be, at this point, organic and coming from small farms. Mm. How, how, do, how do we make this how do we make this transition from kind of big agriculture to mm, smaller, more sustainably managed farms? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 90% of the food that we eat actually comes from outside of Maine. And in Maine, we really don't have those big agribusiness, you know, large farms that uh, tend to have, you know, real issues with um, pollution and, you know, challenges like in other places where there are really large farms. So one of the things that we can do is try to buy more food locally because the farms that are in Maine, um, whether they're, you know, organic, certified organic or not, um, 
most farmers are working really hard to take good care of their land and their animals and you know you can get to know that farmer if they're in their, your community and you're going to know what their practices are so I think the more that we can think about spending our food dollar here um, and with our farmers and supporting our farmers in the state the, the more that we'll move toward that that sustainable um, vision of our food production and food system. Your family is from Litchfield, mm -hmm. and do you still have a family farm there? We do, we do. Um, yeah, it's actually a, an exciting story for me personally because um, I, a few years ago I really started trying to help my father and my brother, my youngest brother, figure out how to transfer ownership of that farm to my brother. He's known all his life that that's what he wanted to do when he grew up. He wanted to he wanted to take over the farm. That's what my father has wanted for him. Um, but it's a challenge that a lot of farmers face. And you know, this sort of generational transition um, point is a point in time where a farm can actually be very vulnerable because it's there are just so many complicated issues that come up when trying to figure out how to pass something like that on. Um, and especially with a dairy farm because there's a lot of infrastructure and it's, you know, there's a herd of animals. It's not just a few fields and some greenhouses. And so for a young person to try to access the kind of capital that allows them to buy into a, a farm like that is really challenging. So totally coincidental. Um, Maine Farmland Trust was actually doing a uh, shooting a film at right around that time and they were looking for a few different stories to tell and um, the filmmakers came and talked to me thinking they were going to have me be sort of an academic you know perspective that they would interview and uh, inter intersperse my opinion <laughs> throughout the film but um, but they asked how I got interested in in agriculture and I talked about my family's dairy farm and that we were really in an interesting turning point um, and that it, it was complicated and they said that's that's the story we want to tell so there is actually a 15 minute vignette um, that uh, is part of the growing local film that uh, was released a couple of years ago before I ever worked for Maine Farmland Trust. Um, and it talks about, it, it tells the story of, you know, the challenges that we were facing, but it ends as kind of a cliffhanger. And you don't know if they were actually successfully able to, you know, do a number of things that they needed to do. So I always like to have the opportunity to say that, yes, they rebuilt the barn. They are, you know, they've been growing the herd. They are well on their way to making this transition. And they've come a long way but it's taken years and I think that that's you know something that also has helped me to understand that farmers need to be thinking about succession uh, long before they think they'd like to retire. It seems to me that uh, we went through a time where people didn't want to go into farming so succession wasn't really an issue it mm -hmm. was mostly how do I sell this farm or how do I donate the farmlands to um, a land trust but it, there's now a resurgence in interest, I believe, in farming. Why do you think that happened? I think it's been the result of a lot of really hard work. Um, you know, when you look at the ag census numbers, uh, what has been happening in Maine has actually been happening in New England as a block. Uh, and it's quite different than what's happening in the rest of the country in that we are increasing the number of farms and we have been for, you know, a couple of decades now. But when you look at the long history, if you look at like a hundred year scale, it's almost imperceptible that, you know, uptick. And so what I think is that, you know, there are a lot of organizations and people that have been working hard at 
um, really getting people to change their minds about the importance of agriculture, particularly in a state like Maine, where it's it's just, you know, we have an incredible natural resource base here. Um, and I think that, you know, young people are really starting to uh, get excited about um, the idea of knowing how to do something like grow, grow their own food. It feels like a really satisfying profession. Um, I think we still need to keep working really hard though because the economics don't always work out and there are a lot of challenges that our farmers face that we need to keep trying to figure out how to, how to move through. Tell me about some of those challenges. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, the, sh- the you know the share of the food dollar that the farmer gets is still quite low, um, and people spending on food has you know the 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 rate at which they spend has remained relatively flat for decades. And meanwhile, we've got farmers who are dealing with you know rising costs of inputs and. Um, and then you throw in, you know, climate change and some of these other challenges that are um, changing the way that farmers can sort of anticipate things on the ground and, and can create more risk for them uh, in terms of crop failure and, and things like that. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, it, it farming farmers operate with a pretty slim margin anyway, and um, and you know. The price of food, the cost of food, is not necessarily reflected in what we pay, and they're not necessarily getting the the share of the food dollar that helps them to be more stable. So we have to we have to work on that from a lot of different angles. I believe I remember statistics from a few years ago about um, how much Americans spend on food, um, and I don't think that's changed overly much. But we spend less on food than most modern nations. Correct. And I think that we actually spend more on healthcare dollars. Correct. <laughs> so that's an interesting <laughs> irony there. Yeah, I think there's a real connection there. So how do we, you've said a lot of people have worked very hard to bring younger farmers into doing this type of work. How do we help encourage people to uh, focus their efforts on eating good food rather than waiting until the effects of bad food mm. cause healthcare problems? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I wish I had the answer, but I think, you know, a piece of the answer is to just continue talking about this. And, you know, I think that we've come a long way in the last 10 years when you think about all of the books and the articles that have been written about, you know, where your food comes from and really digging into some of these issues. And I, I think that the awareness is, it's rising and we just have to keep doing what we're doing and doing more of it so that more people understand that connection and and, and so that more people um, know how to access healthy food and and see the value of it. There's also an education that um, is necessary for running a farm, which mm-hmm. not all of it can be had in a university setting. Some of it. We, we spoke to um, someone who had a soil science degree mm-hmm. from a university, and that, that is a very um, scientific thing that is useful, but some of this stuff that farmers do is very practical and really can only be learned while you're going through it. So how do you help young farmers know what they need to know? 
Yeah, I think, well, I think we have an incredible resource here in the state. Um, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association has an excellent apprenticeship and journey person program. And so I think that, you know, the hands-on nature of those learning experiences are really uh, great for people who are thinking about farming. And it also gives them an opportunity to step into it without taking on all the, you know, all the overhead and the risk. And um, and, and it also helps to build that network, the social network of young farmers. I think that's a really important piece of um, of the puzzle in terms of, you know, the new farmers succeeding. I think they really need to feel connected um, and supported by each other as well as by older generations um, who are mentoring them. And I think that that program, you know, does a really nice job of helping to uh, make those connections happen. And, you know, and, and there are some other more informal ways that people can learn how to grow food and um, in different parts of the state but I think that that particular program has really solidified a, a pathway for for young new farmers that want to learn how to grow food. You also have I'm sure both personal and professional relationships with these older farmers I hope you still have a relationship with your own family members. Oh definitely. <laughs> um, and I, I'm wondering what they think of all of this. Well I, I guess I don't know what other people think about it, but I know uh, what my father thinks about it. Um, I, at one point in time, I remember him telling me that of all of his children, I was the one he least thought or least suspected would end up being really uh, invested in agriculture and the future of farming in Maine. Um, I don't know why he thought that, but I know um, he is excited that I, I do feel passionate about it and, you know, from are you know helping out on our own farm all the way to thinking about what is the broader future of agriculture in Maine and how do we make sure that this excitement these young farmers these new farmers not all of them are young but new farmers who are um, interested in growing you know the agricultural base here in Maine that they're they're not just connecting with land but they're actually building viable businesses and and able to sustain what they are creating now long, long, long time into the future. How does the Maine Farmland Trust work with other organizations like um, the fisheries um, organization or the the lobstering um, organizations uh, within the state that are doing different types of, I guess, sourcing Mm. of food products? Yeah, well, maybe it's, it's helpful for me to just you know, say a little bit about our work and how it connects to um, what work that others are doing. Uh, We have three primary program areas. Um, We work on protecting farmland. We work on farmland access. So, you know, these new farmers that are looking for land, helping them to find people who want to lease or sell land, farmland. Um, And then farm viability, which is another really important uh, component of, of success. And uh, so, you know, our interest is in making sure that there's a future of farming in Maine forever <laughs> and that, you know, all of these pieces have to be in place in order to make, make that happen. And so, you know, other organizations, and you mentioned some that are on the working on the fisheries issues, we're just as interested in making sure that we have, you know, access to fish and 
um, and that people can sustain themselves in coastal communities fishing for the long term as well. So we're, um, we participate in a group called the Down East Fisheries Partnership, which is really pulling together numerous organizations working on um, you know, issues on the fisheries side of things. And we're really at that table because um, we feel that, you know, all of these resources remain um, and the wonderful, you know, benefit that it brings us to have such great seafood and such great um, food grown on land. Um, we want to see all of that working together and we don't want to, you know, forget about the, the fishery side of things. And then we work with a lot of other organizations um, in Maine who are, you know, dedicated to a other ag and food issues. And, and um, I think the collaboration and keeping sort of connected and understanding the work that we're all doing is re a really important component because if we were just trying to work on our piece by ourselves, um, it would be a, a really tough, you know, boulder to roll up that hill. I was talking about uh, soil science a few minutes ago, and one of the things I think about often is how important um, healthy soil is. And obviously, we have a state that is many different. Um, you know, we have, we've done. There have been mills in existence, for example. We've had um, the naval air base that has opened and closed. Um, there are lots of different industries that can contribute negatively to groundwater runoff and um, healthy soil. Is that something that your organization um, is working on as well? Um, well, you know, I think that we always have to be aware of, you know, competing uses or of land and um, ways in which land is being used, particularly adjacent to farms or, you know, in proximity to farms that could have an impact on uh, the ability to grow healthy food there and so that's certainly something that we pay attention to um, and you know and to a certain degree the work that we do around farmland protection is really aimed at preventing a good farmland from being uh, developed upon um, in a way that would prevent its use as farmland in the future so whether it's by industry or by you know resident residential developments um, but just really making sure that we're protecting the, our best agricultural soils how closely do you work with um, conservation trusts and we were up in Booth Bay this last weekend doing a 48 hours for Maine magazine and they have a huge land trust mm. up there so many wonderful walking trails and I believe that they just purchased a large saltwater farm with many acres um, is that ever a collaboration that you engage in? All the time, yeah. Uh, you know, our local land trusts throughout the state are such an asset. Um, and we are actually in a really uh, wonderful, um, we have a wonderful opportunity right now. We have a donor that has really invested in our ability to protect farmland and um, has given us $16 million. Um, we have to raise the match for that, so that comes with a challenge, uh, and we're working really hard to do that. Um, but, you know, we, with that opportunity to protect more farmland, and especially more farmland here in southern Maine, where there's so much development pressure, uh, we have to, you know, we, we work really closely with these local land trusts because they know where the farms are in their community that are, you know, most vulnerable and where there could be opportunity to ensure their um, their future. And so we, we work closely with them to help identify those farms and also um, in helping to protect them. 
you um, have done a lot of academic work in addition to the advocacy work and mm. leadership that you're doing with the Maine Farmland Trust. You are co-author of a New England Food Vision, Healthy Food for All, Sustainable Farming and Fishing, Thriving Communities. What did you learn from that? And what have you learned from the academic side of your existence? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm actually um, a PhD candidate at the University of New Hampshire now. Um, and uh, so I definitely love the academic side of things. I love researching and I love understanding trends and you know why things are the way they are. Um, what was great about working on the New England Food Vision was that I got to work with some people who had been thinking about um, our ability to produce food and the fact that we could be doing a lot more of it in New England for a long time. And so Brian Donahue, who was the lead author as a professor at Brandeis University, um, Russell Libby, who uh, was the um, executive director of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association before he passed away, um, Mark Lapping, who was a professor, is a, was a professor, um, is retired now at the University of Southern Maine, and a number of other people who uh, just had a lot of experience working uh, on some of these issues, and and you know being able to step back and look at our natural resource base and think about you know a future 50 years forward and what what's possible if we really put our minds to it, and you know on the other side of it we came out with sort of a moderate projection that if we really all pulled together we could be producing about 50 percent of the food that we uh, eat here in the region and um, and that it would actually be a really wonderful and diverse diet and you know we could we could really enjoy what we what we have to offer here in that way so um, I think it's it was really just all the way around a great experience to to think about you know the po what's possible and you personally, how, how does working on food and having spent so much time thinking about food um, academically and practically and in your current role, how has that changed the way that you've lived your life? Oh boy, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I don't remember ever not really caring about food. I love food. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with, you know, on a dairy farm, and then I have another part, uh, portion of my family who are uh, lobstermen and fishermen, and so I've always had good food around. Even as a kid, our family celebrations were always about food, um, and so I think I, I think I'm just really excited that I've found a way to work on issues that I feel so passionate about. Um, and you know, I get to have a delicious meal <laughs> on a pretty regular basis too. But I, yeah, I'm really committed to buying locally and um, supporting local farmers. Um, that's you know, I think because I come from a farm family, I it's it's so important and real to me. I really, I really do feel a connection to the food producer when I'm making that effort to to support local food. As far as the Maine Farmland Trust, what is your sort of highest hope? My highest hope, um, it's an incredible organization. I, I, I've, I've been in this position now for five months and it's been a really fast five months, I have to say. But um, the staff are incredible and um, I, my, my highest hope for this organization is that we keep doing what we're doing. 
um, and for a long time into the future because you know we've at this point protected 55,000 acres of farmland um, you know we do a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one work with farm families and uh, I think that that's going to be needed for a long time, that kind of work. And I should say the other piece that I haven't talked about is that we, we have a really um, robust outreach program as well. And that includes an art gallery. And we're working to really find creative ways to tell stories about why agriculture is so important in the state and um, to really help people who maybe haven't made the connection yet make it in a new way um, and want to support the work that's being done by a number of different organizations around the state who are, are really changing, um, changing our food system and I think for the better. Well, I appreciate the work that you are doing and I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come have a conversation with me today. I've been speaking with Amanda Beal, who is the president and CEO of the Maine Farmland Trust, a member-powered statewide organization that protects farmland, supports farmers, and advances the future of farming. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Heidi Powell, who is the owner and operator of Dirigo Wholesale, a wholesale distribution company specializing in local and away produce, grocery, and specialty ingredients. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Heidi, you grew up in Wiscasset. I did. So when you were growing up in Wiscasset, did you think you'd be doing this sort of work? Definitely not. Um, I ran away to New York because I wanted to be an artist. And, you know, that doesn't work out so well, usually the first time around. So I came back, I ran away to Boston, came back, and it was just that food industry, I guess that's where my creative energy ended up going. So, you know, it's, this is the perfect place for that, so. So tell me what Dirigo Wholesale does. Um, I source local NOA produce and distribute it to local businesses, mostly local restaurants and small markets. Um, usually in the summertime, most of my produce is local, and that's what I want to push, obviously. But, you know, we can't have lemons and limes and avocados from Maine, unfortunately, so... Those sorts of things come from elsewhere, which I get from Boston. But I also purchase those from a distributor um, that goes down there, a local distributor that goes down there and grabs stuff for me. So still keeping it in the main. A lot of people are interested in the food industry, but your take on it is different, doing the wholesale side. Yeah. Um, well, I worked in, in restaurant kitchens before, so I know that side of it in a sense of I know how people go about sourcing things. So I, I feel like it, the conversations that I have between restaurants and between farmers, I can kind of translate those different languages back and forth to 
you know, whether it be the farmer or the producer. So, so when you were growing up, um, what were your interests? What was it like growing up in Wiscasset? Um, it was, uh, Wiscasset's a strange little town. I mean, they've been in the news lately, but it was very different when I was there. It was a, um, it was a really lovely place, but, you know, it wasn't a place where there was a lot of food. There weren't a lot of restaurants. It wasn't something, that wasn't something that was a main concern, you know, to me in, in school or what have you. But my mother was a crazy gardener. So, you know, those were my those were my interests then with family was like in the summer you gardened and spent time outside and then you know what I what I wanted to do was to be an an artist (laughs) honestly that was what I wanted to do as a kid I don't I don't know I don't know how I ended up with food but I think it was you know you go to art school and you work in a restaurant what was your art Uh, photography and do you still do that? No, I don't really do that. My iPhone does that for me, though. Well, so you still do it. <laughs> you just don't use yes. this. You don't use a camera per yeah, se. No. So, is there anything about food itself that um, I guess called to you in some way? Just the the visual of it, the sensual nature yeah, of definitely. it. Yeah, definitely. That was that was it. You know, I ended up working in a restaurant because that was the easiest thing to do. And then I realized, oh, this is actually a really creative environment to be in. Um, you know, plating things. I'm just creating different recipes and things like that. But the actual plating of things is was definitely the, probably the draw visually for me. So did you start working in restaurants when you were um, in Maine or when you moved to New York? In Maine. In Maine. Um, I worked at the Porthole years and years and years ago. And then I worked at Sunny's, and then I worked at Figo when Figo was open. That was a lot of fun. I mean, I always had fun. I, I worked in those places because I had a nice time. So, It does seem like there's a kind of a parallel between people who are artists and people who work in the food industry. For sure. And for a while, it, it seemed like, well, maybe it's just the, the flexibility, maybe it's the money, not really sure. But it really seems like there are people who continue to make conscious decisions to both be artists and work in the food industry for a long, long time. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's how Los Angeles actually runs in general. You know, you if you didn't have all of those actors and actresses, then the restaurants probably wouldn't run either. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. And I'm, <laughs> I'm also thinking of you know, our audio producer, Spencer, who's <laughs> obviously, he's a musician, and he also has links to the obviously. food, obviously, <laughs> and, and has links to the food industry and has been working within it for quite some time. Um, but it seems like if it's something that if you didn't like doing it, you would just stop. Yeah, they, well, they work, they do work well together. And it's fun here. I mean, we all know each other here, too. It is a small, such a small city. The community is wonderful. I mean, the amount of connections. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Spencer. I mean, and I've known Spencer through restaurants and all of those things for years and years. So so as part of Dirigo Wholesale, um, I would imagine that a lot of what you're doing is creating and maintaining relationships with um, both producers and buyers of product. Definitely. And you've been doing this now, the, the, although you began your um, 
organization back in November. You did this for two years prior to that with Rosemont. Yep, I did. It was, it's, it's, that's the part of it that's so wonderful is being able to have those relationships and communicate with those people back and forth. And, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing right now if I hadn't done it with Rosemont and created those relationships. And I feel like they're really solid because of that. So what are some of the things that um, you see as interesting opportunities for both producers and buyers right now in the state of Maine? Um, you know, we're trying to we're trying to get product from farther up north and move it down, like actually really try and help sustain those farms up there. Um, the transportation issue is is an issue. The transportation problem is an issue, like moving everything around the state is on my radar and something that I really want to try to focus on in the next couple years. Um, if we can do that, you know, just moving product around the state and making it available to so many more people is would be would be awesome. It would be incredible. It would be so great for even those small restaurants that, you know, try to keep costs down so they buy things from away from Boston, you know, but if it's if it's more readily available, the cost can be less and it can be local. And if we can make those things available to the smaller mom and pop, you know, diners and things like that, you know, there's no reason why we all can't be using main product. So how how can we keep costs down for people? Is there, it seems as though some of the larger distribution organizations have done as well as they have because they're able to offer things in bulk. Mm -hmm. If you're a smaller organization, then how how can you kind of, I guess, equalize that? That's something that I'm definitely working on. Um, I feel like there doesn't necessarily need to be a, you know, a big warehouse holding all of those things. We need to just be helping each other move product around. So if I go, if I go pick up 100 pounds of potatoes, maybe those 100 pounds of potatoes go directly to who they need to go to that day. And there's no, there's no middleman. There's no sitting in a warehouse overnight or things like that. You know, cutting down on transportation and, you know, keeping things for a long period of time are going to cut down on costs too. So if they can just go to where they're going and have there be some sort of organization in, in that transportation, then I think that would keep things down. I mean, there's so many producers right now. There's so many young farmers. They're, everything is available to us at this point in the summertime. So are you working, you're currently working on systems that would enable you to yeah. more efficiently get something from point A to point B without Definitely. any middle place? Yep. That's top priority, really, at this point. So tell me about that. I wish that I had more to tell you about it. It's um, it, It's something that is... Like I think I've kind of figured it out some days, and then, and then I realize there's like a whole other aspect to it that I need to consider. And I think really what it's going to take eventually is many people working together, doing the same thing in different parts of the state, um, kind of like an umbrella, you know, just moving quantities from here to there, from person to person. Who were all kind of doing the same thing in different areas so um, that would be that's what I've come up with <laughs> so far um, 
you know, I, I want to try to work with smaller farmers to just help them move product themselves because they don't need to be delivering as often as they do. I want them to be farming and producing and, you know, taking care of their crops and such. Um, and I'm happy to be there to move their product around for them. So it's really kind of identifying who's best able to play whatever roles are needed. Oh, for sure. For sure. Definitely. It's going to be certainly going to be a game of delegation, if you will. So it sounds like maybe some of the stuff that you're learning is stuff that um, you didn't kind of realize was going to be the case when you started. Definitely. I I thought I was going to be you know, moving 25 pound bags of carrots to restaurants here and there. And, but it's such a, it's a huge issue. It's so much bigger than that. Um, the state is big. You forget how big it is until you get to drive around it and pick up 25 pound bags of carrots. (laughs) But, um, you know, people who are working on a tight budget, they, uh, they need some help and definitely up in the county and such. Well, yeah, if you're if you're talking about driving from, say, the Portland area up to Fort Kent, you're talking about, you know, a six-hour six hour drive, and you have to have somebody who's willing to do that and mm-hmm. do that whenever the product is available. Yep, and the, that's the schedule is the really the big issue. It's, that's the part that seems up in the air. So, so there's a networking piece, there's mm-hmm. a scheduling piece. It's, it sounds very logistical. Yeah, it, it will be. <laughs> It, you know, just talking to everybody about those things now, that that all by itself, you know, setting up those meetings to talk to those people that could help you, that all by itself is a crazy logistical nightmare sometimes, especially with so much snow. But, um, so I can't imagine. It's going to be, it's going to be great when we can work it out, but it's definitely going to be quite a, quite a job. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed is that there are more and more products that I wouldn't have thought um, we could actually maybe grow in our state mm-hmm. are now being grown in our state. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's now main-grown grain definitely. that wasn't being um, produced, you know, a decade ago. Yeah. I think they, didn't they just get a grant too? Main Grains just got that great grant. So hopefully that can... That takes them far. They were, I know they were getting busier and busier and couldn't really keep up with it. So hopefully that helps. But yeah, like there are people doing local ginger and turmeric and like all, it's just, you know, the need for those, the fact that there's a need for those things is the great part, I guess. Yeah, that is actually interesting because if you think about it, for example, ginger, that, that was something that was mostly from the Far East. Yeah, in Hawaii we used to bring in a lot of Hawaiian ginger. So even the idea that we would think, oh, let's let's try growing this here, which is a completely different climate. Yeah. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah, they're and the ginger that the people that I'm thinking of are growing is so delicious. It's so good. It's fresh and like it's really good. <laughs> are you seeing more people doing stuff with greenhouses? Um, yeah, actually. And, you know, the greenhouses, like hoop, big hoop houses and um, aqua, aquaponics, the, all the aquaponic, um, like, spring works. And, you know, they do all the greens at this point are all uh, 
you know, all year round, which is awesome. Fresh greens all year round. It's a cool thing. Yeah, especially not um, the where we used to have to truck things in from California. By the mm-hmm. time we got these greens, how fresh could they actually be? Not so fresh. <laughs> Um, there's, I was doing a, um, my partner works at Peaks Island and they're focusing on, um, in the, at the elementary school and they're focusing on doing, uh, food systems. They're teaching their kids food systems. And she asked me, you know, what, what is available locally? And she made up this tiny little list, like potatoes and onions, like what's available right now? And I went back through and looked at the availability list for me right now. And it's so long. Like, you can get, you can get so much right now still. Local. Well, run through that for me. I wish I had the list in front of me. It's, I mean, it's crazy. Daikon radishes, you know, obviously potatoes, onions, um, greens, tomatoes, cucumbers, like... I just, I wish I had the list. Beets, um, gosh, I mean, you can get those grains, all main grains all year round. What am I forgetting? Sunchokes, so many things, so many things. And do you find that people are more accepting of trying to eat within the season than they once were? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if my answer is reasonable answer you know the people that I'm selling to and are people who push those kinds of things anyway you know that's kind of their thing is that they're selling local whenever they can so I I would have to say yes and the people that I know they certainly do but I'm not sure I'm that would be an interesting statistic to find out so who are your main clients who do you work with mostly um, the small restaurants down downtown here. I have um, Blue Spoon, Hugo's, Eventide, Honey Paw, East Ender, the Juice Bars, Blake Orchard, um, Flying Fox, um, Drifter's Wife. Like the small, the people, the people who buy smaller quantities of things, not necessarily large cases of things, but you know, they buy what they need like every day or every other day. So how does that work? Do you um, let people know what is available and they say, yeah, I'll take so many of these or so many of these, or do they come to you and say, we're looking for this? A little bit of both. I have an availability list that I try to keep updated, um, and that includes local and away, away items. And I, um, you know, I also definitely search things out for people if they're, they need something specific. So I'm seeing when I'm out and about eating, um, I'm seeing that there's generally a set menu that people will offer and they'll offer it for a long time. But then the ones that I really enjoy um, going to a lot, the restaurants, are people that will create these very interesting seasonal specials or even daily specials that will, they'll bring in something that I didn't know like a, maybe a sun choke this, right. this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that requires some flexibility and it requires a little bit of trust on the part of the restaurant um, goer because if you don't know what a sun choke is, then you're probably not going to yeah. want to have that special. Sure, sure. Um, I, you know, I think that I'm lucky to work with the people that I do because they have a specific clientele that is a little more daring perhaps 
Um, yeah, I, I think I think that those are the places that I generally work with. They want to try some new things. And are you able to say, so I have this, whatever it is, Jerusalem artichoke. Yeah. And I think that you could use this in this way. Are you able to help make that translation uh, for them? I, I don't even, the, most of the places I work for, I, I wouldn't even need to say the last part of that. Well, all I would have to say is, hey, I got these really beautiful purple sunchooks in from Ironwood Farm. Do you want to try some out? And most of the time, everybody will say yes, definitely, even if it's just a pound or two. Does it make a difference when you say they're from such and such a farm? I, at this point, I, I don't think it does. I mean, most of the farmers that are working in, in Maine or in this area at this point are all, you know, they all have pretty good reputations and are nice people. There's so many young people that are farming too, which is really cool. I, I've also found that, that yeah. interesting because it seems like it would be kind of a hard job to jump into yep. farming and yet the willingness to go out there and do this and many of them they have young families and mm-hmm. um, they work a lot of hours yep and there's it's not just you know men farming anymore either there are so many women that are just they're all about it right now really out there doing a lot of the hard work which is cool to see too especially now yeah we had uh, people for um a piece that we wrote for the eat guide from Six River Farm in Bodenham. Yep. And this is a couple. Mm-hmm. It's a man and and a woman and their child. I don't think the child's doing a ton of farming right now. Not yet. But, <laughs> but it's a very it was a very seemed like a very equal partnership. They yeah. both did things that they were good at and they both worked very hard and they have this great relationship with Royal River Natural Foods and there was a place for their their produce to go and it and it worked it was very symbiotic mm-hmm. Bodenham too there's so many great places up in Bodenham it's a big young farming town yeah there's something about the soil up there and mm-hmm. and the rivers that all come in exactly and yeah and they're all in that general little area Maine used to be one of the bread baskets and from what I understand Bethel specifically used to be kind of a bread basket hmm. I believe during the Civil War interesting and I'm, I'm kind of surprised by that because it seems cold so <laughs> <laughs> you know we're bringing we're bringing yeah. people who are able to create enough food to send elsewhere but we're not a warm state yeah no we're not there's so many ways around that though you know the, the greenhouses and digging down into the earth and building your who houses that way? I mean, there's there's a million different ways that I guess everybody was getting around it for years before we were around. So yeah, they didn't have all this technology, but somehow they mm-hmm. were still they still knew how to have winter kale. And <laughs> there's still people living in Maine. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> right. We've we've always had people who have decided to brave the cold. We weren't wiped out. Do, is there something about the healthiness of the produce that you're offering to people that? or not even just produce, but whatever products that appeals to you, this idea that it's so fresh, it's so just came from the farm, that yeah. you're somehow impacting their health and well-being. Oh, for sure. That I mean, some you know, doing something that you love is great. Doing something that you love that can positively impact other people is feels so good, for sure. Um and, you know, the, I try to keep everything on a really quick turnaround. So if I purchase something from someone, 
I try to send it out that day, if not within the next day or two. So it is, it's like, it comes from who it comes from and then it goes to where it's supposed to go. So what do you personally like to make for food when you are not delivering all of these, <laughs> all of these nice items to the restaurants? <laughs> um, we make a lot of kind of noodly Asian inspired vegetarian dishes at our house. Also, our the the farm fresh meat that we can that's available to us here is like nothing I've ever tasted anywhere else. It's so good. So, you know, I feel like if you want a steak, buy it in Maine. Those sorts of things. But given that you have been an artist and probably at heart still are an artist but you're now in wholesale distribution. If there are other people who are listening to this conversation who are thinking to themselves, hmm, what's something interesting that I could do with my life? <laughs> what, what kind of advice would you give them? You know, I, I think that I definitely, I realized that um, the creativity in me was something that I, I have to, you know, I have to honor and I, I have to always do. But I think that the only advice that I could give anybody else was would be to actually pay attention to what you're actually doing at the time. So if you're working in retail or if you're working in a restaurant and you're doing that out of necessity, if there's something, what is it about that that you like? What is it? Just be present and, and know what you're, pay attention to what you're enjoying, even if you're doing something out of necessity. And I, w I don't think I would have ever known that this was something that I wanted to do if I didn't do that. Why was I enjoying myself so much selling vegetables? Because I love vegetables. I really love vegetables. <laughs> That's it. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation and I encourage people to, um, well, I guess go to eat at those restaurants that you talked about. Yeah. So oh, there's so many more too. I'm sorry. I didn't say all of them, but I encourage people to, as they're eating at some of these local restaurants that you've talked about, um, or really any local restaurant, to think about sort of how the food got from there to here and what it is that they're putting, um, what we're all putting in our mouths. And I've um, this idea of food systems. It's kind of an interesting one. I'm glad that you're. I'm glad that you're part of this, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a good time. I've been speaking with Heidi Powell, who is the owner and operator of Dirigo Wholesale, a wholesale distribution company specializing in local and away produce, grocery, and specialty ingredients. Good luck with figuring out that, uh, that whole network thing. I bet you'll do it. Thank you. I need it. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kennebunkport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, 
and we're especially excited to note that Love Main Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Main Craft Music Festival with special guests, the ghosts of Paul Revere. For tickets to the Main Craft Music Festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival, go to KennyBunkportFestival.com. All of us at Main Media Collective look forward to seeing you there. You've been listening to Love Main Radio, show number 296, Farms and Food. Our guests have included Amanda Beale and Heidi Powell. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Farms and Food Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. I shake my head